Good morning. So LifePoint is in a series called Summer Playlist, focusing in on Psalms. I watched Pastor Rob's message from a couple weeks ago and loved how he set up the series by reminding us that the Psalms are songs and that songs are full of human emotion. They're not always practical, and that's not a bad thing. The book of Psalms is like a front row seat to see how King David got it out of his system. And God is still using these unfiltered emotions of joy, love, and hope, yes, but also of anger and downright rage sometimes at God himself to move us forward authentically in our relationship with him. So I want to read an example of what I'm talking about from Psalm 44, where King David is saying that things that feel almost questionable, but make no mistake, his words are there as an example for us to follow. This is a rant by David, his prayer that's a little, feels a little crazy. Bear with me. Here we go. But now you've walked off and left us. You've disgraced us and won't fight for us. You made us turn tail and run. Those who hate us have cleaned us out. You delivered us as a sheep to the butcher. You scattered us to the four winds. You sold your people at a discount. You made nothing off the sale. You made people on the street urgents poke fun and call us names. You made us a joke among the godless, a cheap joke among the rabble. Every day I'm up against it. My nose rubbed in my shame. Gossip and ridicule fill the air. People out to get me crowd the street. All this came down on us, and we've done nothing to deserve it. We never betrayed your covenant. Our hearts were never false. Our feet never left your path. Do we deserve torture in a den of jackals or lock up in a black hole? If we had forgotten to pray to our God, if we had forgotten to pray to our God or made fools of ourselves with store-bought gods, wouldn't God have figured this out? We can't hide things from him. No, you decided to make us martyrs, lambs assigned for sacrifice each day. Get up, God. Are you going to sleep all day? Wake up. Don't you care what happens to us? Why do you bury your face in the pillow? Why pretend things are just fine with us? And here we are, flat on our faces, in the dirt, held down with a boot on our necks, get up and come to our rescue. If you love us so much, help us. David is brutally honest, isn't he? Some might even say sacrilegious. Listen, God wasn't wringing his hands in heaven that day that David prayed that prayer, wondering what to do with him, and he's not with us. He can handle it. He welcomes our honesty, our stories. And when we share them, honestly, we move forward. We heal. We find the redemption of God. So that's what I'll be doing today, sharing my story with you, honestly. It's so good to be with you this morning. So, just before fourth grade, I was in the market for new shoes. New shoes are everything in fourth grade. They can make or break you. And because my mom had already done a little preschool shopping, she had bought me this pair of jeans that had a gorgeous sunset embroidered on the back pockets. (laughs) 
So, yeah, I had that going for me. So I needed money to get some new shoes to, like, balance things out a little bit, right? So there was a lawn down the street that was terribly overgrown, and uh, so I hopped on my bike, I rode down there, and there was an old lady picking around in the front yard. So I called out to her, hey, lady, you want your lawn mowed? She waved me in, and as I was approaching her, the first thing I noticed was that she was wearing bowling shoes, right, with large number sixes painted on the back, and she had on this bright pink lipstick. It was like gooped around her mouth. It looked like she'd put it on in her sleep. Yes, I would, she said, and I'll give you $10 to do it. Now, in the 80s, 10 bucks was big money for lawn mowing. I only got $5 for all my other lawns. What a dummy, I thought to myself. But two days later, <laughs> I was still mowing. Turns out there were hidden parts to this lady's yard that couldn't be seen from the street. And since she hadn't mowed since Jimmy Carter was inaugurated, I could barely get through one strip without having to empty the bag. I had to have my brother, Tim, come down the next day to help me finish the job. And we split the cash, five bucks, for two days of lawn mowing. Who's the dummy? So that's how we got connected with Mrs. Poor. And after that, she started inviting us down to her house for just like these little odd jobs around there, mainly cleaning and making jello. True story. Which is when I started to wonder if maybe Mrs. Poor wasn't all there. A thought which was confirmed a day when I found her in the flower bed weeding in the middle of July in a full-length fur coat. Now, sometime in here, her son, who lived out of state, had gotten wind that we were, like, helping his mom out. So, naturally, he put us in charge of her medicine regiment, you know, because we were 10 and 11, right? So, Mrs. Poor had this pill dispenser in her basement that twice a day it would deliver her meds, and she would take them. Well, one day we're over there, and she is upstairs, and we can hear her. She's freaking out, like, I've got to have those blankety-bleeping pills, and we're downstairs, I'm stressed out, and apparently the meds had not come down, you know, the snout that day. And so, but I had a plan. So because my wrists were like skinnier than my brother's, um, and not these man-sized wrists that you see before you today, I wedged my arm up the opening of the pill dispenser like it was a vending machine and was just grabbing as if my life depended on it. Still nothing. So my brother came up with plan B. Now, he was not good in school, but he was street smart. So when he said, here's what we're going to do, I was all ears. So he goes over to this pool table and he picks up a pool stick and he starts digging at the tip of it. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he says, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm trying to get this tip off of here. And I'm like, right, but why? What's wrong with it? And he's like, nothing's wrong with it. I'm going to feed it to her. He's serious. Okay, what exactly do you mean by feed? I mean, I'm going to see if she'll eat it. He says, like, he's done this all before. Are you crazy, I ask? I'm not crazy. She's crazy. That's why I'm going to see if she'll eat this thing. <laughs> oh, and then I start to follow him. You mean like it's medicine. Okay, well, that is not going to work. We need to find something that looks a little bit more like medicine. So I start searching the basement floor. I'm looking for, like, a stray piece of cat food, dog food, an old box of Tic Tacs, like anything that's actually meant to be eaten. This is round, he says, finally getting off, like a pill. It'll be fine. And you think she's not going to know she's eating the tip off a pool stick? 
She thinks those bowling shoes are gardening shoes, doesn't she? I mean, he had a point. We walked the tip of that pool stick up the stairs like it was an unpinned grenade. I thought this was the stupidest thing we'd ever done. Finally, he says to her, you need to take this, Mrs. Poor. She looks into his hand and looks up at the both of us and says, what's that supposed to be? To which I say, it's your medicine, like in full-blown baby talk. She takes it out of his hand, examines the tip of that pool stick from all angles, and says, well, I'm going to need a glass of water. So the three of us make our way into the kitchen and standing there in a bright yellow raincoat that I'm pretty sure she thought was a bathrobe, he fed it to her just like he said he would. And just like that, Mrs. Poor was as good as new and seen. She was. Me, I wish it were that simple. I have so rarely in my life felt like I wasn't going to go off the deep end at some point or have a complete mental break. It was just a matter of time. Ever felt that way? For years, I white-knuckled it, hoping that I would last or that somehow God would show up and would just resurrect the dead in me, if only seconds before I robbed a bank or stripped myself naked and wandered down the middle of a highway. Deep inside myself, I knew I was just like Mrs. Poor. I was crazy. Just nobody knew it. My brother Tim and I were mostly normal we didn't feed everybody bowl sticks. So we did normal brother things. We played football in the backyard. We talked about hot girls. He was always fixated on Laura Mackert. Well, I was focused in on Laurie Reese, who wouldn't have me. I could never understand why. Okay, maybe I know why. Ever feel like that losing your hair is God's punishment for what you once did to it? Yeah, me either. Oh, my. So Tim, my brother, became a main character in the story of my life. That's him on the left, me on the right. We were brothers, broken brothers, broken, aren't we all? Divorce, mental illness, Sickness, substance abuse, eating disorders, porn, the tragic loss of loved ones, financial ruin, abuse. None of us is immune to pain, are we? And the enemy doesn't just attack us. He lies. He's the accuser of the brethren. This is who you really are, he tells us, and we believe him. You're broken Ruined, he says. You are a control freak and you're ruining your kids' lives. Your body, you're fat, ugly, weak. You are not enough. I remember my lie. You will never be 
well. You can get by, but make no mistake, Matt, you're terminal. You are not a man, and you never will be. Abuse in my family of origin was to be kept a secret. And it was, until that secret overran my life. In my family, there were four children, my mom and the man I now refer to as the stepdad from hell. Stepdad from hell did terrible things in our family. He was abusive in every way. He came into my family when I was three, making us a step family, and with his arrival began his assault, violence, and sex were his weapons of choice. I literally cannot remember a time in my life that I didn't know about sex. He groomed us for sex. And while he never laid a hand on me sexually, he did lay a hand on my brother Tim. And because children do what they've been taught to do, my brother Tim laid a hand on me. And we began an incestuous relationship that lasted for eight years until I was 14 years old. That kind of thing can wreak havoc on a person's soul. Now, none of this with my brother Tim felt like abuse. None of it. We were biological brothers. We loved each other a lot. We were inseparable. We had both known that what we were doing was to be kept a secret, but it, it never felt wrong. I had never been afraid of my brother Tim until that one day, a day something happened. But I'll get to that later. I was 21 when Tim died, he was 23. What happened to us or between us was never talked about. I tried once, six months before, he was involved in a fatal motorcycle accident, but he simply wouldn't have it. He wasn't ready to face it, nor was I, but I was already doing what I could to face the nightmare of my childhood, to drag it out of the shadows and into the light where Jesus could get his beautiful hands. I was 21 years old, and I wondered, what is a person to do with all of this? I remember the first time I read the passage from the book of Corinthians where Paul said, I had this thorn, and I couldn't get rid of it, even though I prayed and prayed and prayed. But the Lord said, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I love the version that says, I will glory in my weakness. Glory. I figured there had to be more to that word. Now, the Greek word for glory is doxa, which is used to convey God's intrinsic worth or his value, his, the actual, the value of God. Another definition for glory is the unspoken manifestation of God or the silent existence 
of God. I will glory in my weakness. So in my weakness, in my brokenness, lives the unspoken manifestation, the silent existence of God. Wow. I will glory in my weakness. My weakness, I never wanted to talk about it. Who does? I wanted to be normal. I wanted to be from a, a good family, you know, respectable, no collateral damage. I planned to carry all of this to the grave. Sure, I talked to a counselor, but I'd never owned this as my story. So I acted like I was okay. I pretended. You know the drill. Like I was something that I wasn't. But then I came across this scripture in Luke where Jesus actually warns people about acting, where he says, if you walk around with your nose in the air, that's the acting part, like you're something you're not, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, everything that happened, everything that you've got hidden away, if you're content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. For me, that was good to know. Dan Allender, a Christian counselor and author, says, it's out of our wounds, from the core ache within us, that we find our calling. Core ache. I began to wonder, could all of this, could me being simply myself actually be enough? I began to believe, deeply believe, that I needed to step into the space that brokenness had created within me, that I needed to step into the glory. So, after panic attacks in my 20s, which I highly recommend, such a blast, right up there with hot yoga, <laughs> marital problems in my 30s, alcoholism, and an emptiness in my spirit that I couldn't shake, I went to see Doug the counselor. I needed to talk to someone especially about the something with my brother that I pushed down for 30 years, about the something that happened that one day. And as I told Doug the story of me and my brother Tim for the very first time, I had never been more afraid in my whole life. What happened between Tim and me how was I supposed to make it right? He was gone.
There's a word I'm thinking of, Doug said. Do you know what it is? Rape, I say. Am I right? Doug nods his head. How does that make you feel, man? Not good. But I guess it doesn't seem like rape. I mean, we did that stuff every day. 
You didn't do that every day. Basically, I said, I have to disagree with you, Matt, because in your mother's room that day, you said no to Tim. Actually, you said no twice. That wasn't agreed upon. What's the difference, Doug? Force. Force is the difference. So you're saying I was raped? Yes, ma'am. I'm saying that you were raped. We sat quiet for a moment. I could see myself on the floor of my mother's bedroom. I could see the blue shag rug before my face. So I want to ask you again, Matt, how does that make you feel? I had been so angry at my brother Tim for all of it. But in this moment, I found something I didn't expect to find. Compassion for Tim, for what he'd been through with my stepdad, and for what I'd been through with him. We'd grown up in a war zone. We'd fought side by side as little boys, man. We did the best that we could. I have to forgive him, I finally said to Doug. I want to forgive him. But you know what, Doug? I feel like I need Tim to forgive me too. He wasn't alone in all of this. Neither one of us knew what we were doing. In our brokenness, we did this to each other. Doug smiled. Matt, I think that you're going to help a lot of people one day. The day I met my wife Heather is the day that I grieved the loss of my brother Tim. We were at college, and we were alone in a darkened choir room of the Fine Arts Building, just the two of us, and Heather began to play a song on the piano that was in the room. I'd never heard it before, but it pierced into me. It was called Thanksgiving by George Winston. It was a contemplative piece that opened something painful within me. That night, I sat next to Heather on the piano bench, and I let it out. She played on and on while I wept over the loss of my brother. Fast forward 20 years, I went through an experience called a prayer walk. You may have been through something like that before. During a series at my church, I was giving an, given an iPod and audio narration and was guided through several rooms. Near the end of the prayer walk was a room called The Wall. The instructions began this way. Ahead of you is the wall. Sooner or later, every one of us hits the walls. These are often walls of our own making caused by bitterness, hate, resentment, or unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. As soon as I heard that word, I thought of my brother Tim. The audio continued with instructions. Take a walk over to the table. There was a table off to the side. You'll see clothespins. These clothespins represent people. People that you've held a grudge against or have unresolved anger 
towards. They might be your former friends, bosses, or coworkers, even family members. More accurately, these clothespins represent the bitterness that you feel toward these people. Write the name of a person that you need to come to terms with on one of the clothespins. As you pick up the pin, ask God to forgive you, for, to forgive that person for whatever caused the rift between you. And then ask him to forgive you for your anger and resentment. I wrote my brother Tim's name on the clothespin in red marker and I sat down in the corner of the room. I just, I needed a moment. Behind the narrator's voice, music began to play. I knew the song instantly. Echoing from that choir room 20 years earlier, from the day I mourned my brother's death with my wife Heather at my side, it was that song, Thanksgiving. I couldn't believe it. I sat in the corner of the room and I knew that this moment had been prearranged by God. As I sat there, I imagined my brother Tim walking in the door and walking right up to me and sitting down next to me. We sat side by side. I'm sorry, I whispered softly. So am I. I imagined him saying back to me, I'm so, so sorry. I said, clinging tightly to the clothespin in my hand with his name on it. Me too, he said. Can you forgive me? Of course, Matt. But can you forgive me? Yes. I think... I finally can, I said. We didn't know what we were doing, did we, he asked. No, we didn't. When you're finished writing, walk through the wall, pin the bad feelings on the hanging strips of fabric as you walk through and leave the hatred behind. Layers of black fabric had been hung from the ceiling and shredded, forming a black wall with hundreds of clothespins on it. I thought this mutual act of forgiveness was worthy of its own strip, so I walked into the wall looking for a piece with no other pins on it, but there were no empty pieces. Toward the back, I saw a piece of fabric with only one clothespin on it hanging near the bottom, which seemed like the next best thing. When I walked over there and took that strip in my hand, the clothespin that was already there laid against my wrist. It simply read, Matt. I was stunned. You were already here, I said under my breath. You've already forgiven me. It was as if we had just missed each other. 
Tears filled my eyes as I pinned his name next to mine on the strip of black fabric. I held them in my hands, and I let thanksgiving fill my chest fuller than it had ever been. Now I was getting somewhere. Now I was moving on. When the prayer walk was over, I ran back into the room where I had pinned our names together in the strips of black fabric and looked for them. I wanted to keep them. I actually found the two of them hanging side by side. I have a picture of that here today. Yeah. I will glory in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then I grabbed them and I put them in my pocket, which I know stealing. The point had been to leave them behind, but I didn't want to forget this moment, so I put them together in my desk for safekeeping at work. But then the next day I thought, you know, I should probably take them home and find someplace safe for them. But when I opened my desk drawer, there was only one clothespin in there. The one with my brother Tim's name on it was nowhere to be found. And I knew I'd put them both in there the day before. And so I was frantic to find it. I searched my desk. I searched the floor of my office. I retraced the steps out to my car from the day before. This moment was not going to slip away from me. But as I was on all fours in the parking lot, searching underneath my car, I heard a voice in my spirit that said three words to me. Let him Let him go, I said to myself. Yes, it was time. This journey was one of the most difficult things I'd ever done. I wanted to call it quits along the way. I wanted to stop going to my counseling appointments or simply stop scheduling them, but I hadn't. I had gone, I had done the work, and I felt like God was honoring that. At my next appointment with Doug, I told him about the clothespins and said, I feel like God is honoring the work. Hmm, he responded. I wonder if it's something more personal than that, Matt. What do you mean? Well, I mean, I don't know that God is honoring the work. I think he put the clothespins there so that you could be with your brother because he knew that you and Tim needed to be together. The work may have made you ready to receive it, but the gift was about you. It was for you. It's subtle, isn't it? I have to keep this man around, I thought to myself in that moment. He sees into deeper waters and I need someone fluent in the language of life to help point the way. Doug was more than a counselor. He'd become a friend. By the way, I told the girls, I said to him, told them about all of this, about me, about the abuse. Wow, Matt, you've had quite a week. How did it go? It went good, I said to him, and it had. The girls were getting ready for bed one night, they were 12 and 13 at the time, and 
They were going to sleep in the guest bedroom, which they love to sleep in every once in a while. Go figure. And I knew that it was time. As I sat on the end of the bed after tucking them in, I said, I have kind of a, a tough thing to tell you. It's about your family, isn't it? Chloe asked right away. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Chloe. We talked into the night. They asked questions, a lot of questions. They asked about their Uncle Tim. I told them about the clothespins and their eyes just, just lit up with wonder. Finally, my youngest, Evely, said, Dad, how did you learn to be such a great dad? Because I've been to a bunch of my friends' houses and you are like the best one for sure. And no one even showed you how. Thank you. Bring it in, Dad, Chloe said. <laughs> that one is always ready for a party. And so I crawled up in between the two of them, and together we laid staring at the ceiling while I told them that God had redeemed my bad story, that he had taken what was back there and had given me a new family right here. With my arms around both of them, I knew this is what I was born for, to father them, to love them. They were perfect. I wondered what Doug thought about me telling them, do you think it was okay that I told them? And he said, Matt, there are no secrets in families, only denial. I'm going to give you just a moment with that scary little bit of information. There are no secrets in families, only denial. They already knew, he said. What do you mean they already knew, Doug? I mean, Chloe said, it's about your family, isn't it? She may not have known the details, but she felt it in that. Deep down, she already knew. She did, didn't she? I love those girls. I told them, I love them. They are my family. They certainly are. He said, smiling, but Matt, so is your brother. So is Tim. It's out of our wounds, from the core ache within us, that we find our calling. So, am I called? to brokenness, recovery, and redemption? You bet I am. And that calling comes from the core ache within me. The journey of redemption is painful. It's not easy. It's not easy to recover. Sometimes it seems as if God has invited himself into our pain when we had hoped to be invited into his healing. We want a God who heals our wounds, but it seems we have a God 
who heals our hearts instead. But what if God made a way out for you? And what if because of that redemption, you could be called to something and for something that God needs you and your story, your life to make right in this world because you had found access to his power that was lying smack dab in the middle of your brokenness. Will you glory in your weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon you? God's core worth, his value, the unspoken manifestation, the silent existence, the glory of God is alive in our brokenness. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for using our brokenness to give our lives purpose. Thank you for using our brokenness to make us effective and productive in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Who does that? Who looks at a spiritual resume, looks at the weakness section, and says, I'll make a job for them out of those? But such is the way of Jesus, and so we thank you for not wasting a thing in our lives. God, we know in a crowd this size that there are broken people, people that are hurting, people that have been through it. And so, Lord, right now, I just pray that as your word says, that you would be close to the brokenhearted that they would know they are not alone, they have never been alone, that you can and will redeem them if they step into that space that brokenness is created with them because in that space lives the glory of God. And their lives can be used up for your glory. We give you praise today for all that you have done. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much.